Welcome TTB community. I am Elliot Shibley and here with me in perpetuity is the transparent Bob DeMena. Transparent, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You, you usually say what you're thinking. You don't hold much back. No, why? Why? You know, what's the point? You might as well just be transparent and let it flow and uh, they don't That's, like it. You move them to the side and you focus on the people that do. That's my yeah. philosophy. Yeah. yeah, it's the best. I think it's the best way of finding real friends. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it doesn't make sense to me to do it any other way and have to deal with fake friends. You know what I mean? But that's, I guess, part of being transparent. Thank you. You're welcome. So uh, before we get into the podcast, let's talk about social media first. Instagram and Facebook. That's where we post pictures provided to us by our guests, where you can then correspond with us and the guest, go over the podcast, go over particular questions you had, and just really engage and interact with with us. Uh, so if you, if you like the podcast and you want to be able to do that, you want to see the pictures provided to us by our guests about the conversation, go there, Instagram and Facebook, primarily Twitter too. We're not really on Twitter all that often though. Um, subscribe. If you like the podcast, please subscribe. It really helps us the growth, the, the actual, the numbers, although we really don't focus on them too much. I know I, I struggle with doing that. Other people do, and the better our numbers, the better guests we get, and, the in, and in turn, the better we grow, uh, and the better content we create. So if you can hit the subscribe, hit the like button, hit comment, engage, all that good stuff, it does actually contribute in a significant way to the growth of the show. So behind the scenes of the podcast right now, we are exploring and producing ways to help you draft the best possible adventure you can. You can. We're working to create uh, different uh, items that can help you make the most efficient itinerary. So when you do travel, there is no research involved after the fact, and you can have a great seamless experience. If you want, you can start with the cheat sheet, which is free on our website. When you subs when you subscribe to our newsletter, you can check out our consulting services where you sit down with me one-on-one -on -one, and we go through your trip, your specific destination and your travel style and your budget in detail and we come up with your, your itinerary together through video, through Zoom calls and everything like that. We're working on a 15, five part, 15 minute video tutorial that will help you uh, also plan your trip. And then an ebook and a workbook, which kind of tie it all together and make, make it incredibly easy for you to essentially become your own travel agent and do the work that you would have paid thousands of dollars you know, for someone else to do for you, you'll now be able to do it on your own with the information we're going to offer you. So check all that out. We also have a travel around table podcast series where we're exploring the diversity of our, our planet. And each month we will cover a new topic and have a new panel of travel experts at experts. So check that out. Each, each, each conversation is going to be wildly different and very interesting. And we're going to cover things that are somewhat, uh, polarizing all the way through travel logistics and, and sort of everywhere in between. Really, we're really looking forward to this, this new podcast line and, and hoping it, it really sort of uh, gets good reception, right? So lastly, I think this is the last thing. Last thing. <clears throat> yeah, we've really, as we've grown this podcast, our intros have uh, grown. We, we're just doing so much. But I know. Well, we've had a lot of time during this quarantine. We'll sure, try to shrink sure. it down. We'll try yeah. to shrink it oh, down. I think we will. I think we will shrink it down eventually. So, so just bear with us, please. But uh, lastly, our very own tour guide, Traveler's Blueprint tour guide, is Keschler out of Philadelphia, our home city. So he 
will offer, he offers various tours, uh, whether it's food or culture or history in the city of Philadelphia and the surrounding area to like uh, places like Valley Forge National Park. You can book with him now directly through our website. So please check that out and, uh, and enjoy our city. And you know what? If you come to our city, you got to let us know what it's like Absolutely. and how your experience is. You know, make sure to reach out to us and let us know you're here. Yeah. So, and maybe we can grab a beer or coffee. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Whatever suits your fancy. Yeah, exactly. So, so thank you for being a guest. Elliot, who do we have? I'm sorry. Thank you for being a listener. Elliot, who is the guest today? So our guest today has almost completed an absolutely incredible accomplishment. And I say almost for a very specific reason, and you'll find out in the episode. But our guest has been cycling from Alaska all the way down to the southern tip of Chile. So Dead Horse, Alaska, down to Chile and Argentina. And that is a distance of over 4,600 kilometers, about 28,000 miles. And we discuss logistics. Why? Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint Podcast. Uh, hello. Thanks very much for having me on the show. Absolutely. We have been working to get you on for, I don't know, Bob, what has it been? Six months? Somewhere around there. It, might have, it, it feels like it could have been even longer. Mark, I mean, when we, when we first started talking, you were still in South America. Yeah, correct. Uh, we were in Argentina. Right. And, so when was that? We were, sorry? When was that? Uh, that would have been, yes, yeah, it would have been getting on five months ago, I think. And we were in between towns and often without any kind of internet or really contact with the outside world for world for, um, for days at a time. And, and, and without knowing when we were going to be somewhere, it was pretty hard to uh, pin down a date to talk with you guys. So good that yeah. we can finally get together. It is great. Uh, yeah, it, it is. It is. But is it, um, it's bittersweet. Of course, yeah, because the only reason that you're here and you can talk to us is because of the whole coronavirus situation, which, which pushed you back home, correct? Uh, yeah, it did. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, we would have tried to uh, chat with you guys um, back in South America still, of course, but yeah, but certainly being home has made it easier, but I'd rather still be back on the road. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no well, time at all. And yeah. speaking of being on the road... The reason we invited you on is to discuss your trip biking, not not like, I should say cycling, not motorbiking, from Alaska to Argentina over the course of three and a half years. And we are absolutely stoked, no pun intended, to talk about this with you and go through the planning, go through the highlights, the downtimes, and everything in between. Absolutely. Yep, anything you need to know, um, I can uh, explain how to bike pack, as we call it, from Alaska to Patagonia. All right. Well, we're very excited. I should note that one of our very, very first episode was a good friend of mine from college where she did 900 miles on the South American, uh, the South, the Pan American Highway in South America through Chile. Oh, uh, yeah. Yep. And, and to put yeah. this trip into context, to compare it to that, this is roughly 90,000 no, not 90,000. It's yeah, not other 90, way. 000. Other way. It's 46,000 kilometers. 
That's right. Uh, uh, so it's like thirty twenty eight thousand. <laughs> yeah, it'd be be about that uh, miles. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Still incredibly, um, <laughs> Still an incredibly large number. Long, longer <laughs> than we imagined. Right. Yes. Right. And so, so now we kind of have an idea of of the the total trip, the starting point and the end point. I I want to kind of take a step back though. When and how did it occur to you, or did you come up with the idea to go on this trip and to do this? Uh, cycling is something that we've always done um, as a couple. That's myself and my partner Hannah Black. Um, been together twenty nine years. Uh, one of our first ever kind of dates, I suppose you could call it, was actually cycling all the way around the North Island of New Zealand. We spent five months doing that. Um, I'd previously been on a, a, a short two-week cycle touring trip in the South Island with some friends from school when I was 15 and really loved that experience and so wanted to take it a bit further. And we thought, what the hell, let's just go and do this and explore. And for many years afterwards, it was something that we always went back to and said, wow, that was such an incredible time when we were on the road with a few other commitments and just discovering New Zealand at the pace of being on a bicycle and on our own terms. And so over subsequent years, that was something that we always did. We always rode. I had a foray into mountain bike racing for a few years and we went on shorter touring trips in New Zealand and in the Pacific Islands, Philippines and then eventually decided to plan a longer trip in Southeast Asia, starting in China, Western China, and cycling up onto the Tibetan Plateau, and then south down through, um, through Yunnan in Southern China, and then Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, yeah, finishing on the island of Sumatra in Indonesia. Uh, we did that trip in 2011, and we were on the road nine months, rode, 13,000 kilometers and that was an amazing experience I mean I remember sitting out on that trip and and starting out in China and just thinking man we've got all of this stuff coming up in all of these different countries that we're going to go through and so much that we're going to learn it was a really super exciting time we got to the end of that trip and we had to come home because we were getting short on funds and we were coming home for a friend's wedding and we were like man if we had the money and the time we would just continue so that kind of gave us the confidence to go okay well we could go and do a much longer trip something more committing something more remote explore more with with no time constraints so that was kind of the thing the experience i guess that southeast Asia trip that gave it that was the moment the penny dropped and we were like yeah we could do this a, lo a longer time um because we just both love that lifestyle of being on the road Wow. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> when you started this trip in Asia, did you, or as you were doing it, did you map out every length of it? Did you know the entire route you were going to take or were there parts that you just, you just kind of won, you know, you wanted, you kind of just went with it as you were doing it? Not at all. I mean, we are planners, but we don't plan down to that sort of detail when you're setting out on a journey of that length. We knew which countries we wanted to go to, but we weren't even sure of exactly which order. And uh, we basically made it up as we went along. So at first we had a route that we wanted to ride in China, which was the, I think it's called the Highway 316, the Sichuan-Tibet Highway, which basically goes all the way across China and then up onto the Tibetan Plateau 
and into Tibet to Lhasa. We didn't go right to Lhasa because you can't cross the border as a foreigner. You can only cross it as if you're Chinese unless you're on an organized tour. So we sort of rode up onto the Tibetan plateau to around sort of 12,000 feet altitude and then basically sort of turned south and rode down through the mountains until we dropped right down to the jungle. Um, and then beyond that, we just made it up like a week at a time. We were like, okay, let's head towards this town or that town or those that set of ruins or whatever, planning it as we went along. And it's we followed much of the same sort of uh, ethos, I suppose, with this trip in the Americas as well. And with the trip compared to, in the Americas compared to the one that you took in Asia, was this pre-funded, as in you didn't make any money along the way? Uh, correct. It was pre-funded. Yeah, we were just running off savings. Okay. Whereas, Can I ask how, how much did you prepare for those trips? Uh, how do you mean? Prepare in, in terms of financially preparing? Um, well, we knew, I mean, we knew we had a certain amount of savings for the Southeast Asia trip. Uh, whereas this trip's been a bit different because I have a bit of income on the road and we had a really decent sort of padding of savings. We actually kind of wrapped up our lives in New Zealand completely before we set out on this journey in the Americas. We, we had a house which we sold. Um, we invested the money from that into another smaller house, into apartments. And that left us a cash surplus as savings. Um, so we bring in basically a small income from the property, not much uh, in the scheme of things. Um, the house is paid off, but the two apartments are fully mortgaged. Uh, and then I bring in a bit of money as a photographer and writer on the road. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, yeah. Been, it's, a, it's a good formula. It works for us. It'd be nice to be bringing in more money from the photography and writing side of things, but we spend so much time writing. It's really hard to actually sort of sit down and spend more time working. And that's yeah. kind of not exactly what you want to do when you, I suppose, it started off as a focused journey. Like we were like, okay, we're going to get from Alaska to Patagonia and it's going to take 18 months to two years. And it evolved into more of a lifestyle. And that's why we're still on the road uh, after three years and 10 months. Yeah. I was going to say, I think going from Alaska to Patagonia would be much less than 18,000 miles if you took a fairly direct route. Sorry, yeah. 28,000. <laughs> yeah. And, and some people do, some people, ride down the Pan American Highway or they take main roads and you can knock it off really quickly. I mean, yeah. people have done it ridiculously so, fast. And the so average, oh, go on. No, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, the average cyclist would probably do it in a, a year to a year and a half, but okay. we were much more about, and we discovered this as we went along, we were much more about wanting to explore and also to avoid you know, the arterial routes and the main roads and those sorts of things. We don't like riding in traffic. Yeah. And the kind of roads that we chose to try and ride through the Americas, we'd often only see sometimes only a couple of cars a day, literally. Wow. That sounds like vagabiking. It does. It does. I think I just made that term up. Do you know, have, you, have you heard the term vagabonding? Oh, vagabonding, yes. Yes, but vagabiking. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. So, so Mark, this is really interesting to me. I mean, one, um, you, your funds are going to be uh, much more limited in the United States as being probably the most expensive country to tour on the planet, right? Probably one of them, maybe top three. Um, yeah. And so 
now you know you have a set number of funds, but now you're you're making sure that you go into deep into the country and explore the culture, which I love. I took a cultural geography class in college, and I found awesome. it incredibly interesting. Yeah, because and the United States is a great country for that because the cultures change as you drive through it, as you make your way across it in any direction. So it's a really it's a really good country to see that transition in architecture and the environment and everything like that, while still maintaining a general, you know, umbrella culture. So yeah. Um, as you're going through, did you make it a point to, was it like a, a, a point to meet people or just kind of check out different towns? And what was your experience like going through the United States? Uh, our experience in the United States was fantastic. We were following the Great Divide mountain bike route, which mm -hmm. is quite a well-known, um, so it's kind of a network, I suppose, of connected uh, dirt roads, fire roads, a little bit of single track, but mostly dirt roads through the United States following the Rockies. Um, you st the route actually officially starts in Banff and finishes mm -hmm. at the Mexican border. Um, at a place okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, sorry. Uh, it's a little south of, sorry, it's a little south of Hachita where it finishes, but Hachita is where we left the route. Okay. Um, but it follows the Rocky Mountains. It's a quite high altitude most of the way down, like 2,000 metres or around, I guess, uh, 6,000 feet or something. And we, were, we, we rode most of it on the cusp of winter. It was fall and it was really cold and days were short. And we were kind of a little nervous because we wanted very much to stay on this great, uh, on, on the route, on the Great Divide mountain bike route all the way down through the United uh, through the United States to see what it could offer, but we were always worried whether we would make it over the next pass, particularly the higher passes in Colorado. Um, as it turned out, it was one of the latest snow years in decades or something for Colorado, and we eventually made it down into New Mexico. But having that kind of, um, it gave it an edge, I suppose, kind of being very, very cold at night and in the mornings, always below freezing. Um, but generally beautiful, clear weather. We got caught in a couple of snowstorms. But um, the, the route's very classic in the sense that it takes you through a lot of smaller and remoter, I suppose, communities in the United States. So it was really nice to get a picture of what those are all about. You know, having spent a bit of time in the Western US in general, uh, it was really nice to travel through that area. Yeah, we had a yeah. great time. <clears throat> I've been up to a portion of the Great Divide Trail on, I forget the mountain now, but in Colorado. <laughs> I, don't, I think it was, uh, it was January um, or February when I was up there and it was, no it was freezing. Oh yeah, I snowmobiled right. though. So I snowmobiled uh, and it was still intense. <laughs> and oh, yeah. So <laughs> I can imagine being on a bicycle. You're, you're probably really fortunate that there wasn't any heavy snow because it I would assume that if there was a pretty significant snowstorm, you'd have had to come down the mountain at some point and, and try to go from there. But um, as far as the towns go, did you, did you go and like meet people? Did you, were they used to people like you coming through that way? We, yeah. Um, yeah. It's quite a popular um, route for people to follow the Great Divide mountain bike route. So they're used to seeing cyclists um, and we had, good interactions with people though, the whole way. I mean, in general, almost everybody we've ever met on travels in the United States has been, have, has been good. They're great people. We, we had a lot of fun talking to people and meeting locals, but um, I think 
overall the the memories or the the connections and the meetings we had with people further south like remoter cultures and and poorer farmers and people in these communities and the and the andean communities they probably stand out more because they're their societies and their groups of people living in circumstances that are so much different to what we're used to living in. Whereas for us traveling in the United States, although it's different to New Zealand, it's not that different, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So yeah. kind of once we crossed the border and got into Mexico and beyond through Latin America, that, that it became a much, a, a more powerfully cultural experience, you could say. And your trip was not, you didn't spend the entire time uh, just going from Alaska to Southern Chile. Your trip was broken up a few times for different side routes. You ended up going to Cuba for a few weeks to do one of those routes. Can you talk about some of those side excursions? Yeah, I, um, like, like I was saying, I guess at the start, we were sort of thinking the journey was going to be quite linear. Like we were going to take maybe a certain amount of time and not deviate too much but the more time we spent on the road um the more we realized we wanted to explore these other places while they were kind of a little close to us i suppose and cuba is a good example of that we were already in central america and cuba's so close and we were like we'd always wanted to go there and we were like man we can't resist that and also it provided a good good opportunity to get through the darien gap which is the remote, it's basically the only break in the Pan-American Highway between North America and South America, the section between uh, Panama and Northern Colombia, ah, which is a yeah, kind of a wild remote jungle region with a reputation for, you know, crocodile infested rivers and snakes and swamps and drug traffickers and human traffickers and, and all that <laughs> sort of stuff. I mean, people do go through there, but it wasn't, an adventure we were quite prepared for at that moment. Um, it's something that's kind of still on the table for us actually now, but so we thought, okay, well, we'll ride to Panama, fly to Cuba, ride the length of Cuba, and then fly from Cuba to Colombia, to Cartagena. And so it was a convenient punctuation, got us across the Darien Gap, gave us another country to add to the list. And Cuba was a fantastic experience. Yeah, one I, real quick that that gap I didn't I didn't realize it was called the Darien Gap. That's um, it. Yeah, I didn't. I just found out maybe within the past year that there's no road that connects North America. No, it's, America. it's just too logistically complicated to put anything through there. Oh. Yeah, so oh. obviously it makes a massive difference to yeah you know it's a it's a break in the cultural identity and there's no trade through there. So right, right. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like one of the what you know it's one of not so many kind of wild untouched places yeah very interesting i never heard of that i didn't i always assumed that there was some kind of connection between columbia and Panama. just just footpaths in the jungle wow yeah good luck um all right so so now you get to cuba and i'm going to i'm going to make an assumption that cubans probably weren't as used to bikers coming to the island for a, a trip like you were doing is that is that was that the case or was that your experience there yeah, there's uh, there's a a few people do go riding there touring, um, but mostly on the main roads. We were following a route that was published on a website called bikepacking.com, which is kind of like the home for information about remote cycle touring or what we call bikepacking. So 
there's a there was a route on there published by some Americans who've been over there uh, fairly recently called the Route of Mala, which which ran the length of the country, avoiding paved roads basically, following going into the Cuba's got a few little mountain ranges, so it goes through those, follows, spends a lot of time riding through sugarcane fields and going in and out of these tiny little remote communities, um, which was a pretty interesting experience. A lot of those have been cut off by the collapse of the sugarcane industry in Cuba. So these were places that were like once served by train and, and had you know quite a thriving industry. And these days they survive purely on on government handouts basically like they have these bodegas in the villages where they can go and collect their weekly allocation of rice and beans and and staples but other than that there was just nothing going on in these places like people were incredibly poor um surprised to see us um but friendly and welcoming and going through communities like that we always try to kind of do our bit i suppose i mean we'll always if there's someone selling food on the side of the road like you know, they were making these kind of little things a bit like donuts, you know, and that was the only thing you could buy on the street there. And there was no, no restaurants. So we would just go and, you know, go and pitch in. We're hungry. We want to help the local economy there. So we'll always go and buy that stuff. We don't, we don't, we're not afraid to eat what the locals eat. That's something right. that we all do while we do. Yeah. Yeah. It's often the most exciting part. Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And it was fascinating seeing the whole kind of recycling industry there too. Like just about every time we had a drink, it was made in a beer bottle that had been cut in half. Really? Or, yeah. Or you'd buy like a bit of flan or some cake or something and it would be sitting in half a beer can. Interesting. And yeah. And you buy an espresso and they'll, they'll actually like make a bunch of espresso on like a stovetop espresso and then fill up a thermos and then they'll sit on the side of the road and you can go past and stop and buy a little coffee for a few cents. And, and it's really interesting because there's these kind of two worlds in Cuba for travelers. There's the package tours, which yeah. are, a lot of Russians go and attend those and they live in this kind of bubble where you go from, you know, resort to the beach and back again and that sort of thing. And everything costs quite a lot of money. There's even a separate currency for it. Whereas yeah. if you just like a local in Cuba, you're on it, you operate on, on a different currency that everybody else uses. And, um, it's super cheap. Yeah. We I'm assuming, pay. I'm assuming there are no restrictions for you to go that to Cuba, right? As far as your government. No restrictions as such, not for New Zealanders, but, um, <laughs> it's tight. You can only have one month on your visa oh. and you can only stay in certain accommodation. Um, like, regular guest houses tourists aren't allowed to go and stay at so you can only stay at places that have got like a permit to allow tourists to stay oh interesting but since since um since the government there relaxed how people can run private businesses there's lots of like little hole in the wall businesses popped up in recent years mm -hmm. and some people run these things i can't i'm sorry i can't actually remember what they're called but they'll run like a they'll have a room available in the house and they'll provide you breakfast, dinner, yeah. and lunch. If you want it? Casa Particulares, I think they're called. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So these people are licensed, and they'll have like a little logo on the door. So you're riding through a town, and you see one on the door. You know you can go and stay there as a tourist. You pay sort of between ten to twenty US dollars 
you can have breakfast and then carry on riding the next day. Wow. Very comfortable way to do it. Yeah. How long did it take you to get through Cuba? Uh, we were there a month and riding for about three weeks. Okay. Yeah. And the, I'm on the bikepacking Trans-Cuba route right now, and it's a little over 860 miles. Yeah. And did you guys go east to west or west to east? Uh, we went from east to west. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we had a 15-hour bus ride from Havana to the other end of the country and then oh, rode right. back, basically. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, okay, and so you take, now you take a flight back from Cuba to Colombia. Yeah, and right. then we arrived in Colombia, like it was just before Christmas. And we'd been in Cuba for a month. And, I mean, you can hardly buy anything in Cuba. I mean, most of the places we went to, um, there was no food on the shelves in the supermarkets and h hardly anything. I mean, there was food, but, I mean, very, very little choice. You're really restricted in what you can buy. You're really restricted in the kind of meals you can eat when you go out and find something to eat. And so we got to Colombia, and it's just like this land of bounty. We're in Cartagena. It's in the tropics in the north. And it was just so much fruit and food and mm. good beer and everything. It was a really nice kind of opening after after the time in Cuba. Good introduction to Colombia. Yeah, I bet. Uh, good coffee, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. And so did you stick to the same plan of staying in rural areas and did you have a route through Colombia? I mean, I know this isn't actually the case, but I in reality, but I know Colombia has a kind of a bad reputation for being maybe somewhat dangerous as far as gangs go and right and yeah and, and and tourism and for tourism so did you did you take that in stride and just kind of go with it and and stick to the rural areas regardless of that reputation uh we did yeah i mean uh, we had a a slightly bad experience in colombia right at the very beginning where we were actually it was ran we were still based in cartagena we were there for about two or three weeks actually because we were waiting for a parcel with a part for my bike to arrive from the United States. And we decided to ride out to this beach for New Year's. And we were riding from Cartagena. I think we had to ride maybe 50, 60 kilometers. And it was basically the very first bit of road we rode in, in Colombia. And we're riding along the road and these two guys on a motorcycle came up beside us and swiped Hannah's mobile phone off a handlebar. At that stage, we used to quite often have our phones on our handlebars for navigation. Mm -hmm. And these two guys were so bold, they just, they'd already ridden past us and cased us out. And then they stopped on the side of the road ahead of us and pretended there was something wrong on the motorbike while we rode past them. And then they came up behind us and they waited until Hannah was behind me so that I wouldn't see what was happening. And the guy that was on the back of the motorbike just reached out and grabbed the phone off her bike and took off, like while we were both moving. Wow. Gone so fast and they just took off down the road. And we were like, damn, that's actually the only time that we had a negative confrontation with anybody the whole time we were on the road. Wow. Yeah. And that, I mean, that could have happened anywhere. That could have happened in the United States just yeah, as easily totally. as it happened in Colombia. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's nothing, it's nothing bad on Colombia. And I, I don't want to, I, I kind of regret saying what I just said about it having a bad reputation because we talked to people who organized tours there and, I don't think it's really the case overall. It's a great country to visit and you should go if you can. 
Uh, there's a lot of bad press out there, I suppose. You know, you hear terrible things about Mexico, Colombia, Central America in particular. Right, right. We had no bad experiences in those countries. People we met were as friendly and helpful and generous and considerate as anywhere. And I suppose it was a takeout from the whole journey overall, really, was that people are generally good. I think we're pre-programmed to be nice to one another and considerate and empathetic and to, and to look after each other. And that really shone. I mean, other, other cyclists on the road don't have such, you could call it luck. I don't know. Or maybe it's the vibe you put out, but um, you know, not everyone has totally positive experiences, but we certainly have. I mean, we've spent nine months in total traveling in Mexico without a problem. We had yeah. no problems in Central America. We've talked to close to 100 travelers around the world, and that is a common theme. I don't know how many times we've heard that, right, Elliot? How many yeah. times have someone said, you know, people are just good. People are generally good and genuinely yeah. good. And so it's nice to hear it, you know, once again. It's, yeah. it's, it doesn't get old hearing that. So No, not yeah. at all. I mean, the, the only other bad experience we had was in, in Peru and Juarez, and we, our, our hotel room was broken into, possibly even by the hotel staff. We're not sure. And they took Hannah's camera, which had some photographs on it that we hadn't uploaded to the laptop yet. And a couple of other little bits and pieces like our Leatherman. And they took things that we wouldn't notice straight away. Like they could have taken my camera lenses and the laptop if they'd helped themselves to everything in the room. And so we're pretty lucky really overall. And that's the only burglary we had. Yeah. Do you, do you worry about going through these, some of these countries, you know, there, there's a serious issue with poverty and you're carrying around what I'm assuming is thousands upon thousands of dollars worth of equipment. Is it, is it a concern putting that away every night? And I, I'm assuming you slept in tents too at, at points. Oh yeah. We slept, I mean, the majority of our nights would have been in, in the tent um, for sure, but it's not something we worry about. It's something that we think about and we take, I don't know, sens sensible precautions, I suppose, but mm -hmm. it's yeah. not something you can yeah. worry about day to day. I mean, at the end of the day, we've got travel insurance. You know, if, if a lens is stolen, it's replaceable. It's not right. that big a deal. The photographs yeah. are more important. Um, I'm a photographer by trade. Hannah's a really enthusiastic photographer too. And my ongoing project with the cycle journey is to publish a book at the end of it. So, you know, my photographs are my assets. And if I lose those, that's a big problem. Yeah. So we have things on two separate hard drives with us on the road. Hannah has one and I have the other one. Um, and sometimes we've sent things ahead, like to lighten up for certain sections of trail and that sort of thing. But I always keep one of those drives with me. And we also have everything backed up as JPEGs in the cloud and periodically send a hard drive home with stuff on it too so that stuff's all pretty well backed up so sounds yeah. like it yeah, yeah. so we have like a good system it's just we sleep we we sleep peacefully put yeah. it that way <laughs> so from from colombia you then headed south through ecuador into peru right yeah ecuador peru bolivia chile uh, yeah. yeah i saw that you stopped in bolivia for three months yeah, that's uh, the maximum on the visa. Yeah, we, okay. we, we spent as much time as we could in a lot of these countries. I mean, Mexico, we were there five months, I think. Um, Cuba was, sorry, sorry, not Cuba. Um, Colombia was four or five months. 
Peru, we ended up being there a year. <laughs> we were having <laughs> yeah. such a good time. It's such a good country to, to bike pack and tour around. And it's great food. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so much. Yeah, it's a really cool way of doing it because when I first came upon you and your trip, I immediately just thought, you know, you just went from point A to point B and that's what you did and that's what, like, you know, everything is going to be revolving around. But you actually, you, you traveled extensively really what you did is you traveled extensively by means of bike, right? It's which yeah. one took priority for you? Was it seeing these countries or making the bike trip? Well, I suppose you mean in terms of the overall focus on the thing, like did it become more important to explore than to be saying, right. Hey, we ride from Alaska to Patagonia. It definitely became more important to explore. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's a cliche, but they say the journey is the destination and it's totally true, at least in our case. Originally, I mean, at the beginning, we were, we were focused on that end goal. But after, after we'd been on the road a few months, we added another year to the whole script. We were like, we're going a little too fast and we're not getting to spend some extra time in these interesting towns or these interesting places. So let's, and we're lucky that we're in a position where we don't have any children. We don't have any commitments. There was nothing to stop us adding more time. So we added a year and then we ended up adding another year. And then we were on the cusp of adding even more time when we had to come <laughs> um, home because of COVID. Yeah. So, right. yeah. so how far had you gone before March, 2020 when COVID kind of really took hold? Uh, you mean in distance or where were we? Where were you and in distance? I guess we'd done around 43,000 kilometers, maybe something like that. Okay. And we were in, I remember we were in Argentina and we just had a couple of friends from New Zealand come out and ride with us for a couple of weeks. And we were in a city called Mendoza. We stopped there for a week so I could do a bit of work, do a bit of writing and catch up on the blog and that sort of stuff. And it was, starting to kind of be a bit more present in the media and I remember as our friends were going home Hannah and I were sort of talking about how we wouldn't want to go be going through certain international airports at that moment so it was already something that we were kind of cognizant of and starting to think about a little bit but at that time Latin America was untouched by the virus as far as we knew and it seemed so far away from what was starting to develop and you know Wuhan was on lockdown and um I think it was just starting to really, you know, take a grip in Italy and Northern yeah. Italy, but otherwise we felt so far away from it. So uh, as a quick aside, uh, did you have any Malbec while you're in Mendoza? Of course. <laughs> because that is, yeah. that is one of my favorite regions for wine in the world. I yeah. love, I love Malbec. The wine there was fantastic and it really was a kind of, um, we, we'd spent a lot of time at high altitude and in remote desert regions before we got to Mendoza. And so kind of rolled into the city and there were trees and food and shops and heaps of people. And in fact, an amazing food and culinary culture there. So many good restaurants and kind of affordable too, even for us. <laughs> uh, so we had a really nice time there. It was a good break from the arid, high altitude energy kind of sapping places that we'd been been in for so long since we'd really been in Peru. Right. 
And from Argentina, well, prior to reaching Argentina, you had kind of skipped ahead a little bit and done a segment. And then once you get back to Chile, whenever COVID passes, and you'll actually finish the route and close the gap. Yeah, that's right. So we, we basically crossed back over the Andes from Mendoza across to Santiago following like these little horse tracks. Um, it was an amazing experience in itself. A, a really great journey for a week, crossing remote Andes, high altitude again, and fantastic single track riding. Really good little adventure, that one. We arrived in Santiago and we knew that um, Patagonia is kind of time, that which is the southernmost part of Chile and Argentina is kind of time critical in terms of getting through there before winter. Mm. And as a photographer, I wanted to be there during the optimum season to shoot during autumn, basically when the, the trees turn a really nice color and it's a bit quieter, it's colder, but it's a really nice time of the year to be there. And so we decided to actually catch a bus south from Santiago to Puerto Montt and then resume riding. And then, yeah, as you say, we were going to close that gap later. So the original plan had been to ride down through Patagonia through the, through the fall, through autumn, and then actually winter over there for a few months, probably back in Bariloche in Argentina. Um, and then close that gap back to Santiago. So we've probably got about two and a half thousand kilometers of riding to do once we can go back there to complete the journey. Okay. But who knows when that's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. So we have kind of got a grand overview of the whole route, including sidetracks and stops and skips and jumps. And now I really want to get into a little bit of the logistics of it. Um, talking about your bike, the repairs that you had to make, any kind of food you brought, gear, all of this stuff that people kind of don't think about outside of the actual act of biking, but yep. what is, you know, every part of your day. Sure. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, they're questions people often have. So, and yeah. it's, it, 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 fill, it can fill in the blanks. It can help people think about planning their own trip and. Yeah. Well, I guess first question is kind of what Bob already asked. Uh, it sounds like you spent a lot of time sleeping in tents. Yep. Um, how, how much weight did you carry on any given day on your bikes? I couldn't even tell you off the top of my head our overall load on the bike, actually. But our ethos is to carry as little as possible. Um, if you're running a light load on the bike, then you're more agile. If it opens up more options. If you're riding a you know, a heavy bike with all this gear and bells and whistles and the kitchen sink and all that sort of thing. It reduces your options in terms of where you can choose to go. And you tend to have to stick to say good quality gravel roads or paved highways. Okay. We wanted to be able to ride single track, four wheel drive tracks, sometimes no track at all and just go cross country. Okay. Yeah. The, yeah. The bike, that you, the bike that you have <laughs> in your photos are quite burly. To say the yeah, least. they are burly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're kind of specialist for purpose. So, um, not yeah, built for speed. Up. Sorry, go go ahead. Not built for speed. N not well. They're light. The frames are light. Yeah, 
they're built for they're pretty versatile so if you run like a much like lighter wheels on them then they're super fast bikes okay Otso Voitex it's a fully carbon frame super stiff in terms of being able to cope with the load and being efficient when you're hill climbing mm. but carbon has got certain benefits in terms of being able to absorb a bit of road shock and being really comfortable so yeah i, I, I can go on a bit more about how we set the bikes up but but yeah being light is for for us was the most important thing so the bare minimum of clothing the bare okay. minimum of food only as much as we needed for any you know given period of time until we could get to the next resupply and did and, you did you cook often on like a little uh, pilot stove the the journey kind of had some different phases i suppose like when we started out in alaska all the way down through the united states or through canada and the united states we were mostly cooking mostly camping and then in mexico and central america and to some extent colombia we were more often staying in you know guest houses cheap little local hotels or asking people if we could just camp somewhere. And that was because of the reputation those countries ha have. We were a little more cautious about where we, about camping and, and where we chose to camp. So it's kind of, you want to do it. And, and also those countries are so developed in terms of agriculture and they're more populated. So it's harder to find quiet places. Mm. But then once you get into Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, Chile and Argentina, they're, they're bigger countries and they're much more sparsely populated and there's no fences or anything. So it's much, much easier to go and, and wild camp. So that's what we did most of the time in those countries. And that also included cooking for ourselves just on yeah. a very basic stove set up. Yeah. Yeah. When you say wild camp too, I really, if you for everybody listening to this, they have to go to your website to put this trip into context because your photos are beautiful. You did, you did a great job. Oh my God. Yeah. Experience. And it's some of these pictures, you just look, you're just so isolated. You're in the middle of nowhere as whatever the, like to the definition. Um, it, it, it's really, it, you did a great job of kind of bringing the viewer along on this trip. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, one of the times I'm happiest is when I'm standing, you know, on a pass or a ridge line or a mountain somewhere and there's nothing else man-made visible. Yeah. That, you know, that's, <laughs> that's got to feel so cool. Kind of drive to be in. And it's, it's a kind of an angle or style with my photography too, is to try and present the world in the most natural way that I can. And they're the kind of places we like to try and seek out on the bicycle. As far as the night sky goes, have you ever had a darker night sky than you did in, in maybe Argentina or anywhere in South America? Uh, there's actually some, uh, uh, what are they called? There's, there's some reserves for that. Sort Designated of dark sky. So places where there's a, a minimum of light pollution. So you get optimum clarity in the night sky. Yeah. Patagonia was, oh, sorry. Argentina was remarkable for that because we spent so much time at high altitude there up on the Puna de Atacama, which is the high volcanic region that straddles the Andes between the two countries. Mm -hmm. So we were often at an average elevation around sort of between 10 and 12,000 feet. And so you're high. So the, the air clarity is incredible and there's no light pollution at all. So the sky looked mind blowing. Yeah. 
I've, I've never seen the sky like that in my life. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> it looks, it's so cool. <laughs> so yeah. I want to I continue our discussion on this gear because I'm curious, when you set off, I assume you just had a set amount of clothing. Did you have to buy any new clothing for the changing seasons or did you have everything with you? Yeah, it's in keeping with that kind of, ethos of carrying as little as possible we chopped and changed with clothing so if it was going to be cold we carried cold weather equipment and if we knew we were going to be in the tropics for months at a time then we either sent that stuff back home or we sent it ahead Hmm. so we spent a bit of money on courier services and organizing logistics so that we could move gear around but we were also fortunate to be sponsored by both Big Agnes and by Kathmandu Kathmandu mm. provided us with clothing. Okay, so that's after, nice. After, yeah, after we'd finished our journey through through the tropics, but when we got to Colombia, we were able to pick up um, some down jackets and rainwear and that sort of warm gloves and so on from Kathmandu, which got us through the Andes. Yeah, but I mean, we started off up in Alaska on the 6th of June, 2016, which is midsummer. Mm-hmm but it was below freeze. The average temperature was minus three Celsius. So it's pretty summer. Yeah. So we had burly winter weight down jackets and big gloves and, you know, equipment for full, you know, Arctic storms basically. Yeah. And that was one of the most exposed places that we rode on the journey. Mm. And how about bathroom situation? You mean, Personal hygiene or the whole thing, yeah. The world is his toilet. (laughs) (laughs) I we would carry like a little sliver of soap and no deodorants or anything. We would carry a toothbrush, toothpaste. Again, the bare minimum. I mean, in fact, we'd even cut our toothbrush handles off so that it would pack more easily. Not not to say weight, we're not quite that crazy, but just that packs more easily on the bike. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all of that stuff is a bare minimum. You don't really need it. I mean, the body actually starts to kind of equalize. If you don't wash for a week, you know, you don't actually get that smelly. It's the clothes that get a bit smelly. So we tend to try and wear merino rather than anything synthetic. Because you can wear that for, for, I mean, the longest I've worn a merino top without washing was probably three weeks. Wow. Yeah. And that's not because I, I mean, I could have washed it if I wanted to, but water was at a you know absolute minimum, and that's how long we were between towns. So, wow, yeah. Did you ever wash in a natural body of water? Oh yeah, yeah. Like rivers, for mm-hmm. sure. Not as much as you'd maybe imagine, because most of the time it's so cold. But those times, like I remember in in uh, in Canada, coming through there in the summer. You know, every just about every night we could we camp by a lake and jump in the lake at the end of the day. That was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, and a little bit in South America, but Patagonia was was good for that too. Okay, and when you guys you guys tracked your whole trip via GPS, and you were looking at maps as you were going. Did you have like a portable charger or a solar charger? Did you only charge up at towns? Yeah, we we record every single day on a Garmin GPS that we ride so that we can have the 
exact route that we've written to share with other people because we document the journey as we go. Like if we write a particularly cool section for a week or, or just a couple of days, then we'll actually write that up and put it on Ride with GPS with links on our website. Okay. So people can actually download the track and it's annotated with little waypoints and bits of information for people so they can find out where to get water or where to camp and that kind of thing. Oh, that's very cool. So we have that stuff available on the site. And sorry, can you bring me back to the original question? The, the, where do you charge? So where do we charge? So yeah, so we, we, we navigate as we go with apps on the phone and following tracks sometimes on the Garmin. And we use a 2,000 or 20,000 milliamp power bank, sometimes a 10,000 to recharge. Okay. To keep the phones charged, basically. And I can use that as backup charging for the camera. Okay. Uh, but, I mean, if we're in a town, we'll just get everything plugged in. And, I mean, we spent nights in towns probably a little more often than, you, than you'd imagine. I mean, there were sections where we, where we were without electricity for a long period of time a week, two weeks, three weeks. But often we'd be, you know, passing through a town and maybe staying in a town to resupply every, you know, three days, say, three, four days. So if you carry a power bank, then it's, that'll get you through that. And then it's easy enough to get everything charged back up. Okay. Did you we have didn't, any? Oh, we didn't ahead. have panels, but some people do. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like there's a lot of portable chargers available now, like, that can harness, like you just hook it up and the wind will charge a power bank or you can throw it in a river and that'll charge up a power bank. Yeah, I've he I have heard of that, but we haven't tried it. But yeah, they seem really we're, interesting. We're a little wary of kind of gadgets, I guess. Like a thing with a power bank is it's super simple. It's hard to break. They don't really go wrong. Yeah, yeah, very true. Uh, speaking of water, did you have any issues finding clean water or access to clean water along your trip? Uh, depending on which country you're in, it's a it can be a bigger consideration than others. I mean, in tropical areas, it rains a lot, so there tends to be stream water and, and that sort of thing. Rivers are often pretty dodgy because poorer communities tend to put a lot of their refuse or their sewage in the river. Mm. So a lot of the time the river's brown and filthy and you, you don't want to drink it, but side streams can be okay, but we would always treat it with a Steripen, okay. which is ultraviolet light. And you can treat a bottle of well, one liter bottle of water in 90 seconds. So we would just treat it on demand. So we would like, maybe we, we call it zapping. We'd zap two bottles, carry them with us. And then when we get to another water supply, we'd fill up again and then zap them as we needed them. Okay. But then there were other times like on the Puna Day Atacama in Argentina where there would be no water for three days. So we would carry up to 13 litres of water each Whoa. on the bike. How would you know that you weren't, you weren't going to encounter water for three days? Did you just map it out? And we, it's, a bit of, it's a mixture of things. On that, on that route in particular, uh, which is called the Ruta de los Seis Miles, it had been pioneered by another bike packer a year or so earlier and he'd done a huge amount of research but he basically had to ride into the region and find out for himself whether there were places where you could get water because so much of the water in there is saline it's high mm. altitude there's volcanoes everywhere heaps of mineral different minerals 
And so the water is often just in little springs or, or little pools. But we had good notes from him, which are included on his GPX track about where we could get this water. But he went in there with pretty bad intel and, and just a rough idea of where he might be able to encounter these, these water sources. And some people had told him that some water was okay that turned out to not be. He just about died after spending a couple of days in his tent, you know, with no energy to move. He was lucky that a very small community of people, like a, a woman and her two sons who live over in the next valley, happened to be driving past and they saw him and helped him out. But wow, he might lucky. not have Yeah, so, so we were lucky to have his information to ride through there. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you if you encountered anything like that with the water because I know, you know, it, it's it's a possibility. We we had some surprises, I guess, but nothing life threatening. And because water is such a crucial, you know, consideration all of the time, you, we always plan ahead. So when we were planning our own routes, um, which consists of basically sitting down using, we use an online service, ride with GPS because you can, you, can, you can look at the places where you want to go, say over the coming week, and find the remotest route that you want to take to try and get between them. Okay. And then and look, you can use different maps as underlays while you're planning these routes. So you can use uh, Google Maps information, or you can use OpenStreetMaps, or you can look at satellite maps and, and plan these routes. And you can identify water sources often on the ground, like you can see where there's sizable pools like tarns or lakes or streams and so i'll actually plan ahead and write little notes in a gps file as i go and then we'll have that with us on the road that we can look at on the phone and go oh, okay well i put a note here that there's maybe going to be some water over in the next valley mm -hmm. and so you kind of have a rough idea okay but you've got to be careful if you know that it's the dry season these things might be empty so our kind of rule of thumb is to carry often enough water not for the next for the next source that we're hoping there might be water but for the one beyond that mm -hmm. so you've got the offer that's smart that's good information yeah that is good uh so i want to yeah. change gears a little bit and ask you if you had any physical or mental challenges like were there any injuries along the way or were there any points where you're like i don't want to do this anymore uh never once thought don't want to do this anymore i mean it's it's a journey we've both been very passionate about the entire time and we've never lost motivation for it so that's that's never come up physically it's hard at some sometimes i mean hannah shattered her kneecap some years ago oh. in a snowboarding accident snowboarding crash just yeah. a very minor low speed incident but it broke a knee, kneecap into eight pieces Wow. So she was in knee pain when she's riding. You know, she was told at the time when that happened that it was going to be a life-changing injury, and it has been for her. But, I mean, she's since gone on to climb mountains and do these crazy long cycling journeys. And it's just something that she is able to manage. And cycling is better for her than, than hiking. It's okay. less painful. Yeah. So, so that's she deals with daily. I went through a little bit of knee pain, but nothing particularly bad. But That's I mean, awesome. kind of setups pretty much optimized. Like the bikes are comfortable to ride. Yeah. Um, we have a relatively upright position, so you're not like leaning over the whole time. 
um, our backs are fairly straight. So you don't, I have a little bit of trouble with neck pain on the road, but uh, not too much. And the handlebars are kind of anatomically shaped so that our wrists are in a really comfortable position. The, the bars are slightly curved back and they're titanium. So they absorb a bit of road shock. Wow. And put you in this kind of anatomically perfect position for, you know, eight hour days on the road. Yeah. It sounds comfortable. It sounds yeah. more comfortable than my desk job. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it is. But sure certainly it is. in terms of like the physicality of it, like day to day, I mean, there were days we were just so exhausted and we both, you know, sort of reset, I suppose, personal boundaries in terms of tiredness and what we both think we're capable of. You know, we would have these experiences where we were pushing our bikes for sometimes, you know, up to three days along single tracks that were not even possible to ride, places where we thought we might be able to ride. So we thought we would go there and check it out and then dis discovered that you can't. And I mean, that once you go through an experience like that, it changes everything because you go, well, got to push a bike for two hours, big deal. I mean, it's... Yeah. You know, whereas previously you might have thought, oh, God, pushing a bike for two hours is, I just wouldn't want to do that. But when you've done it for two or three days, then it's a difference. A whole new set of parameters and a whole new set of reference points, and that opens up more opportunities to you. Yeah. Wow. So, so that's really kind of fortunate that you had no, no accidents, no medical mishaps, and never had once had to visit any kind of foreign hospital. No, no, it's been, we've been pretty lucky in that respect. No crashes, no accidents. Yeah, that's really, that's really impressive, I should say. Yeah. One, one thing we did have was a couple of skin cancers incidences, which like um, precancerous, suspicious uh, things yeah. that, had, that have had to be treated. But I mean, New Zealand has got such high incidences of that, that that's no surprise. Okay. That, that required a couple of hospital visits. But I mean, other than that, apart from kind of really bad gastro issues in the tropic, yeah. we <laughs> pretty much spared, you know, any serious health issues on the road. That's really fortunate because, I mean, as much as you plan and as much as you can be safe, you still got to rely on other people not to ruin your day. Oh, that's right. I mean, any, anything could go wrong. Yeah. You know, we, we've been very lucky in that sense. Now, um, with the whole lockdown due to coronavirus, how many times have you ridden your bike around the island of New Zealand just to keep, <laughs> just to keep sane? <laughs> just to keep... <laughs> are you? Well, wait. Oh, go on. Are, are you keeping in shape during this time? Yeah, managing to keep in shape a bit. We arrived back in New Zealand right on the cusp of a, I think, four week, three or four week lockdown here. Forty eight hours before that started. And the thing is when you've been on the road or when you've been doing something physical for so long, you get so used to that endorphin fix. Your body is, you're basically addicted to yeah. endorphins flying around your body at the end of every day. And so when you suddenly cut that off, you can get what they call like post trail blues. Like it's yeah. pretty common phenomenon among lost long distance hikers and long distance cyclists and that sort of thing. So we're pretty wary of getting anything like that, but, we were lucky in our circumstances in New Zealand. There's where we're, we're actually staying with Hannah's parents in, in the Bay of, sunny Bay of Plenty in, in northern New Zealand, northern North Island. And 
there's a cycle path near here. And so even during lockdown, we've been able to get out and ride around, you know, even for up to a couple of hours because it's fairly local. And so that has definitely kept us sane. Are you able to enjoy um, being stuck on an island? So I have a theory <laughs> that, that, that Australians and New Zealanders, they travel so much because they grow up on these islands and they, they don't have the opportunity. You're kind of stuck a little bit. And I don't know if that's true. It's a complete theory. It's a complete speculation. I don't know. <laughs> no, you're, you're totally right, actually. It's kind of a, they kind of call it a rite of passage for young Kiwis. Um, people will do what they call the big OE or overseas experience. And like after you've, sometimes it's between finishing high school and going to university or after university before starting a career, people will go overseas, you know, for a year or two years and go and pull pints in London and or work in backpackers and explore Europe and that sort of stuff. Um, right. I mean, you're right, New Zealand is isolated and there is the sense living here that there's this other world out there and there's yeah. other cultures and and little bits of them come here, but for us to really kind of experience the world, you've really got to just go. And because New Zealand's so far away from anything, when Hannah and I go, we go for a long time. I mean, our first decent trip overseas was a year long. Our second trip was nearly three years. And then this last one's been four years. <laughs> So yeah. we, we, we sort of leave and make the most of it. And it's kind of more responsible travel that way too. Like, yeah, you know, global aviation had kind of gone insane with these, you know, long haul sh flight, short duration visits to parts of the world. And that's just not how we like to roll. If we're yeah. going to travel, we like to do it as responsibly as we can. And, you know, can I, can I throw out a suggestion for your next crazy bike trip, your, your next adventure? Yeah, so I think you should try to do the length of, is it the San, uh, Trans-Siberian Rail Line? You know, maybe start. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> I think, how do, you, how do you top what you, just, what you just did and what you plan on finishing? That's going to be Yeah, that's a good too. question. I mean, something we've had in mind for a while is to start. And the, the kind of the theme of this is like the evolution of man. So like to start in Africa and then ride Ooh. north. Ooh. You know, fo follow the path of humans as a species as they populated the planet, basically. So no, to travel, I'm sorry travel from Alaska into Europe and then across Eurasia, basically, right across to the Bering Sea. Which wow. kind of, if, if we did that on the back of having cycled the length of the Americas, you know, that's... Yeah, that's, that's it. it. And then you'll just have to bike Antarctica. Well, you have, you, and then you'd have to bike across the Americas from west to east, right? Yeah, that would be cool too. That yeah. is on the list. I mean, the inherent beauty, I suppose, and the appeal of doing the length of the Americas thing was that we were following the continental divide mm -hmm. of, 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 the, of, you know, of the continent. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's pretty the, cool. The, they call it the American Cordillera. So basically the continu nearly continuous dividing ranges, which split the continent Pacific on the West Atlantic on the East. Right. Yeah. That yeah. The theme of the journey and also the fact that you're starting so far North and then crossing the equator and finishing so far South. It's unbelievable, man. It's, it's wild. Just, yeah. I still can't put it into perspective. No, it's hard. Oh, to neither, well, neither can I sometimes I look back on it now and think, man, it's, We've just got this incredible catalog of experiences and memories. Yeah. 
Does it feel like one trip or does it feel like a bunch of little trips? It feels like a, it's chapters. It feels like a bunch of little trips. Okay. Yeah. And like it, they're often defined by, you know, I was talking before about riding through the United States during fall, you know, and worrying about winter and snow. And so that had this whole kind of theme and, and identity. And then other big sections of the trip have had their own as well. Hmm. Mexico was this incredible journey because for much of it, we totally made up our own route. We didn't follow anything else that we'd found online or downloaded except for the Baja Peninsula. We followed the Baja Divide bikepacking route, but the whole rest of Mexico, we planned that as we went step by step. And that was an incredible experience by itself that you could write a book about. And it gave us the kind of the confidence, I suppose, for how we carried out a lot of the rest of the journey in terms of planning to ride into these remote sections where we had no information about the people, the towns, all the road conditions or anything like that. Now, I do want to get in, I do want to get into your book, but I also, we've talked about two of the bad incidents, but I want to talk about at least one highlight of your trip that you can pinpoint. Good question. I've got to try and think of something. Um, uh, give me some more cues. <laughs> uh, was there a single person or a single city or meal, something, or maybe an environment that sort of overwhelmed you and you could maybe, you're able to maybe take yourself back to and reflect? Yeah, on? I guess, I mean, there's, yeah, there's been so many. I, the, the part of the journey that I fall back to the most often at the moment when I'm, when I'm daydreaming or when I'm out on my bike riding around or that, I often reference is the ride that we did, and I've mentioned this a couple of times in this conversation already, the Puna de Atacama, which is this desertic region in northern Argentina and Chile. Some people might have heard of the Atacama Desert. Mm -hmm. This is effectively the same environment, but kind of on the Argentinian side of the mountains. So after we left Bolivia and entered Chile and then Argentina, we followed this route called the Ruta de los Seis Miles. And we, were, we had a young, uh, young German guy with us, Felix, who rode with us for the three weeks that we were on this section. And we were carrying uh, 18 days food, nearly three weeks worth of food. And there was no resupply the entire way. We only encountered a handful of people, like a couple of people just in the first few days. And then some more people later on. We were joined briefly by some other Colombian cyclists, but this area is so remote and so empty and it's defined by you're surrounded by tall volcanoes. And then in between there's these gigantic salt flats, which are sometimes like horrifically corrugated and you have to ride across them. There's very, very little groundwater. The place is calm in the mornings and then so windy in the afternoons that sometimes you couldn't even pitch a tent. You'd have to wait until it grew into the evening and the wind dropped off a little bit and you could pitch your tent. We've heard about people being blasted by gravel and sand while they're riding along going through this area. But it's a place that very few people know about, very few people have even heard of, and just full of the most remarkable colours in the landscape, reds and yellows and oranges, almost totally devoid of vegetation um, and covered. In, and you're basically just kind of like rolling, riding through volcanic ash and sand. So... You, we, 
that's one of the reasons we ride these really wide tires on the bike and you run them at low pressure so you can make headway through this stuff but that stands alone as like one of the most powerful experiences of our time on the road yeah i mean mark this entire trip this experience the the, the story you just told in the entire experience is something that so few people in not only now but like in human existence got to get to experience this is pretty significant i really think that i mean how many people maybe a few hundred ever did anything like this it's yeah it's, it's a good question i mean it's there's there's more people are out there riding the length of the americas than you'd imagine you know doing the kind of classic alaska to patagonia thing and i think cycle touring has grown in recent years so Equipment's cheaper, there's more of it. And obviously the internet has totally changed the way information is shared. Yeah. It's so easy to pick information up and learn stuff and equip yourself with knowledge. Not necessarily experience, but you can pick up knowledge pretty fast about how to set right. up. Um, and so that makes this sort of thing more possible. But most people follow paved roads. And our point of difference is that we don't just try and ride dirt roads, but we try and find the places where no one else has been riding. And yeah. so that, that was kind of the mix. Our journey was a mixture of following classic routes that other adventurous cyclists have uploaded to bikepacking.com and what have you, and then trying to make up our own routes to fill those gaps in between. And so that does make our journey stand alone. Um, it's unique. It's our, it's our creation. And we're really proud of that. But, certainly there's a lot of other people out there doing super rad things on bikes as well yeah yeah well we have a special segment but before we get into that segment uh can you talk about your books i believe you have three of them uh one of them is a photo book yeah technically yeah they're all kind of all three of them are photo books i guess okay. but yeah yeah i can i can talk about them um after our last sort of three year leg overseas we came home and worked for four years and during that time i published three books so the first one was a lucky break really i mean i was already a photographer and selling images to magazines and websites and for stock photography all around the world but I had a good opening with an author there who invited me to participate on a project with him so we made a book about 15 New Zealand mountains and I climbed all of those mountains some of them are just hikes some of them are, are full tilt mountaineering trips you know like climbing Mount Cook the highest mountain in New Zealand um, but that was that was kind of a, a, a lucky break with this publisher New Holland Publishing and so I followed on from that with a second book, which was called Te Araroa, Hiking New Zealand's 3,000 Kilometre Trail. And I actually pitched to the publisher about the idea for this book and said, look, I want to walk the length of New Zealand following our national trail called the Te Araroa Trail, which is kind of like the New Zealand version of the Appalachian Trail or the, mm -hmm. the PCT. Mm -hmm. 3,000 kilometres along, linking together backcountry regions, and hiking trails through New Zealand. And so I went and did that and spent six months walking. Hannah joined me for maybe about a third of it. Um, but so much time on my own in the wilderness in New Zealand and really seeing our country on its own terms was a remarkable experience. I, I loved it. It's one of the absolute best things I've ever done. 
and with me on the trail, I had all my photography equipment, four different lenses, my camera body, a pile of spare batteries. And I just photographed the trail. Like the book is a, basically like a, a, a large format landscape photography book of New Zealand landscape images from the corridor of the trail. So expressing, expressing what you see if you walk the country from top to bottom. And that's the project I've been the proudest of and the one that's sold the best and the one that's kind of resonated with people the most. So a very satisfying project. I'll yeah. be sure to pick up a copy of that. Like I mentioned in an email to you, that was the country that Elliot and I, we had scheduled for 2021. I don't know yeah. if it's going to happen now. Yeah, you mentioned that, man, I hope you can make it over here and please get in touch. If, Absolutely, if, man. Oh, I mean, yeah. that's the, the, the whole purpose of going to New Zealand. I mean, not the whole purpose, but a majority <laughs> of our time we want to spend in the wilderness hiking and exploring New Zealand for its natural beauty. And so your book sounds like the perfect way to research that and learn about it. And, so we'll pick up a copy of it, but I don't know. Cool. I hope we can come. Um, yeah. You know, I guess we'll see what happens. And if yeah. you're, if you're there still, obviously we should, we should meet up, you know, please get in touch. I'd love to be able to share a bit of local knowledge and, you know, man, even host you if we have the opportunity for sure. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. 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 All right. Bob, you ready for the rapid fire questions? I'm ready. So Mark, we've been doing this new bit. It is 12 questions and we are going to alternate asking you them. If you can answer as openly and as quickly as you can, that is the intent. All right. I'll do my best. All right. Bob, you want to get it started? Sure, I can get it started. All right, Mark. Um, what is the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word travel? <laughs> Bicycles. What home comfort do you miss the most while traveling? Oh boy, um, espresso. If you could swim in any liquid, what would it be? Honey. Ooh, that'd be hard. <laughs> that'd, be <tough. laughs> that'd be sweet. Uh, pick two animals that you would want to see fight. Oh boy. Um, oh no, that's a hard one. Um, I don't know, a crocodile and anaconda. Oh, that'd be a good one. That would be a good one. Would you rather drink wine or coffee for the rest of your life? Oh, no. Um, mm, wine in moderation. Whew. All right. Uh, can you say hello in your favorite language? Uh, <laughs> my favorite language. I can say hello in English. I can say hello in Spanish. Hola. There you go. <laughs> If you could, if you could travel in the world with anyone living or dead, who would it be? Hannah. Good answer. <laughs> uh, what is one item remaining on your bucket list? Oh boy. Um, well, I already referred to one cycling across out of Africa and across Eurasia, but oh boy. Um, I'd really like to go and ride the Annapurna trail in the Himalayas. Hmm. It's traditionally it. a biking trail, but it's also something you can go and do as a bikepacking ride. So, yeah. I have to look into that. Um, who is your biggest celebrity crush? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You know, nothing springs to mind. I kind of don't follow that universe. That's okay. That is yeah. all right. 
if you were stuck in one city for the rest of your life, which city would you choose? One city for the rest of my life. New Zealand is home. Christchurch is my favorite city in New Zealand for having access to the outdoors. I'd, I'd have to say Christchurch. If you owned a yacht, what would you name it? Um, boy, I don't know. For some reason, the universe springs to mind. I don't know <laughs> right. why. I like right. it. I like it too. All right. And the most important question of them all, who is your favorite Traveler's Blueprint podcast host? Oh, boy. That's a tough one. It is you very got a tough. Good job. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. No, I have to, I have to split that award equally. All right. All right. Yeah, we'll, we'll share, share it. We'll share it. Yeah. All right. Um, before we get off, why don't you give a shout out to your social media handles, your website, where people can check out your photography, basically connect with you. Oh, sure. Thanks for the opportunity to do that. Um, my website is hilux.co. Dot nz that's h i g h l u x dot c o dot nz um you can find us on instagram at um hilux photo and being hannah all right i highly recommend if you're listening to this to follow those social media handles to go to the website because it'll put uh, this conversation into context in a, in a really beautiful way so yeah yeah if anyone wants more information please go and check out our website hilux.co.nz um, you can find a lot of bikepacking routes information about getting set up for bikepacking and a ton of stories about our journeys as well as our links to instagram wonderful thank you so yep. much thank you so much mark glad we finally got the opportunity to do thank this thank you so much i've really enjoyed being on the show it's good to talk to you guys thank you very much